None but Christ. He is sufficient. He's the all-sufficient Savior. He's Lord of all. And it is him we'll talk about this morning as we turn to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3, verses 19 through 31. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time, so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Last week we saw from Romans chapter 3 verses 9 through 19 that the entire human race is under the power of sin, in consequence of which no one is righteous. No, not one, along with other ugly, disturbing features of man's sinfulness. And if that weren't bad enough, verse 20, with which we begin today, declares in effect that sinful men and women cannot come into right relationship with God by works, by way of law-keeping, in the words of our text, for by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. Which is to say that far from saving from sin, the law only serves to show us the awfulness and seriousness of sin. Like a mirror showing us all the flaws and faults in our parents, the law merely reveals sin but does nothing to remedy those sins. Rather than justifying the sinner, the law serves only to condemn and convict the sinner. Far from saving the sinner, the law silences the sinner with respect to his or her guilt before a holy God. Verse 19 says this. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may become guilty or held accountable to God. And when we look in particular at verse 23, which we read earlier, we see that the human predicament is further heightened by the fact 
that in his sin, man, even when he tries, cannot attain to pleasing God. The verse says, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. In fact, in the Greek, it is even more vivid because in the Greek, the idea is this, that having sinned, all have sinned, all, they are constantly coming short of the glory of God, which is to say, even though man tries to be better, even though he tries hard at keeping the law, at bettering himself, he cannot attain to the righteousness of God. In short, guilty before a holy God, sinful men and women, we would say, are in deficit when it comes to the righteousness that would bring them into saving acceptance and favor with God. This is the distressing truth of verses 19 and 20. Now against this dark, depressing backdrop comes the gnawing question, is there any hope for guilty sinners? What recourse is there for averting the wrath of God, the wrath of a holy God against sinners? Is there any possibility of their being forgiven of their sins, of their being acquitted of their guilt? And praise be to God, verses 21 to 31, with these verses come the divine solution. In summary, Paul expresses it in verses 21 through 24 as follows, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. He says this, This is the righteousness that has been revealed, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Here in these verses, Paul is saying, as it were, that we as all humanity lie under the power of sin, lacking God's righteousness, that righteousness that demanded by God and exposed to the wrath of God, a viable, effective solution has finally been found to take care of the sin problem that man has to bring him into saving acceptance with a holy and righteous God. And that solution is the righteousness of God's own making made available through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. So the central thrust of our text this morning concerns the question, how are sinners justified? How do they transition from a state of unrighteousness to a state of righteousness, from a position of guilt and condemnation before God to a position of favor and acceptance with God. And here we're speaking this morning of the doctrine of justification. This is the second time in the epistle that Paul is calling attention to this great doctrine. The first was in chapter 2, verse 13, and Paul will continue to expound this doctrine right up to chapter 5 in the entire book of Romans, the word justify and its cognates occur some 20 times. 20 times here in chapter 3, we find that the word justify and its cognates occur six times. But what is this doctrine of justification? What is this doctrine all about? Now, in popular usage, the word justify and justification relate to one's proven innocence. You hear someone say, well, when all is said and done, I'm going to be justified. You're going to hear all the truth and I'm going to be justified. What they're saying is this, I'm going to be vindicated. 
The word is used to speak of the rightness of one's action or the excuse or explanation that's given for one's action. We're talking about popular usage. We say, for example, that the manager was justified in firing the employee. That there's no justification for breaking the stop sign. That stealing is never justified. But what we want to point out this morning is that in the biblical sense, God's justification of sin does not mean his excusing their sins. It's not a case where God, after thorough examination, concludes that after all, because of mitigating circumstances, these persons are justified because the temptation was too strong. Much less does it mean that he finds them innocent. What then is this biblical doctrine of justification. And to begin with, we need to point out that the Greek root word translated justify or justification is the same root word that's translated as righteousness and righteous. So right away we begin to see that justification has something to do with what? Righteousness. The doctrine of justification concerns this. It concerns God declaring sinners righteous, acquitting them of their guilt, thereby freeing them from wrath and condemnation. That's what justification in a nutshell is all about. It is all about God declaring sinners, guilty sinners, righteous, acquitting them of their guilt, thereby freeing them from his wrath and condemnation. Of course, there's more to that, which we'll see as the text is unfolded. Suffice it to say and to stress that when God justifies sinners, he reckons them, it means he reckons them to be not guilty, though they were charged guilty. This is what makes the difference, all the difference between human law courts and God's courtroom. In human law courts, the aim is to pronounce guilty men guilty and innocent men innocent, as one man puts it. And by the way, that's only as it should be. As to what obtains, it's a different story, right? But generally speaking, that is the aim of the law courts. It's to find the guilty. Guilty, it is to pronounce those who are innocent as being not guilty, innocent. Listen, in God's courtroom, God pronounces the guilty innocent. And it's very important we know that God's justification of sinners, watch this very carefully, it does not mean, it does not mean that he makes them righteous. When God justifies the sinner, it does not mean that he makes them righteous. Rather, what it means is simply this, he declares them as such. In other words, justification is not about a change in one's state or nature as a sinner. Rather, it is a change of one's standing before God. That is why, for example, you look at the book of 1 Corinthians, and Paul is writing to this church. It's a church that was riddled with sin. These Christians, we would say today, some would say today, they were carnal Christians. And if you notice how Paul addresses them, he talks about the fact, and he suggests that before God, they are 
righteous. Later in chapter 6, he says, but you are washed, but you are sanctified, but you are justified. Justification has nothing to do with one's practice. It is all about a change of one's position before God as a sinner. Now, the doctrine of justification, we want to say this morning, as by way of preface, is one of the most crucial cardinal tenets of the gospel. Luther cited it as the doctrine of the standing or the falling of the church. And he goes on to say this quote, this article, that is justification, is the head and cornerstone of the church, which alone begets, nourishes, builds, preserves, and protects the church. Without it, the church of God cannot subsist one hour. Neither can anyone teach correctly in the church or successfully resist any adversary if he does not maintain this article. Let me put what I would have Luther say. Luther, in saying that, would point back and say, look at 1,500 years of the church not preaching justification. And what you have are sinners in ignorance bound by chains of ignorance on their way to a Christless eternity. This doctrine of justification, beloved, is a critical doctrine because it is re related to this doctrine is one's eternal destiny. Because here's the point, if we do not have this doctrine right, then it has serious consequences for our relationship with God and where we'll spend eternity. I tell you, this is where many stumble today. This is where many, many stumble and get it all wrong when it comes to this doctrine of salvation, the whole matter of how one is saved. And Paul is opening up in this passage how a person comes into saving favor with God through God's justifying grace. Now to many, the doctrine of justification, of how God puts sinners right with himself, is a strange doctrine. It is a strange doctrine. To some, it smacks of heresy. To others, it seems too simplistic. Still to others, it sounds too good to be true. And so in unbelief, they dismiss it. Notice the first thing that Paul does in our text. The first thing that Paul does in our text, Paul suggests that the doctrine of justification, of God justifying sinners, is really nothing new. It is nothing new also because, as he says in verse 21, the law and the prophets bear witness to it. What Paul is saying here is, look, I'm not coming with this new doctrine. You know your Old Testament? Go back to your Old Testament, Paul is saying, and you will see that this very doctrine of God justifying sinners solely on the basis of faith, apart from works, is coming not just from me, but even the law. Even though salvation is apart from the law, yet the law itself points to the fact that God justifies sinners by faith apart from works. And so notice Paul demonstrates this in chapter 4, verse 3. By the time we get to chapter 4, verse 3, we'll see this. We're discussing the doctrine of justification. He references Genesis 15, verse 6, which says of Abraham, here it comes, that he believed God and it was reckoned to him as righteousness. That's the language of justification. Abraham had not been circumcised. Abraham was not even a Jew. Abraham was coming from pagan territory, from Ur of the Chaldees. 
And God took him out one night and you can count the stars and your children, your descendants will be like that. The Bible says Abraham believed God. And what did God do? God says, Abraham, you're righteous. In Romans 4, verses 7 and 8, he calls attention to Psalm 32, 1 and 2, in which the psalmist, David, speaks of the blessedness, quote, of the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. He speaks of the blessedness of the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. That word counts, equivalent to the word in our text, reckon, is the language of justification because that's exactly what God does when he declares sinners righteous. He reckons them not guilty. He reckons them not guilty. In Galatians chapter 3, verse 8, he writes, and the scripture foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, here's what Paul says, preach the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. We are saying this morning, Paul is going back to the Old Testament and saying this doctrine of justification by faith apart from the works of the law is nothing new. It's attested to by the law and the prophets. Now, in Isaiah 53, notice in Isaiah 53, in referring to the suffering servant, the one who would be our sin bearer, whom, of course, we know is none other than the Lord Jesus. Here's what the prophet Isaiah prophesied of him in Isaiah 53, 11. He says, out of the anguish of his soul... He shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall my righteous one make many to be, ready, accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. Again, justification by faith. Indeed, throughout all the ceremonies, all the types of the Old Testament, through all the various pronouncements of the prophets, we, we hear echoings of the atoning sacrificial work of Christ, whereby God would justify sinners apart from works of the law. So what then, the question is, what then does our passage teach regarding God's saving work of justifying sinners? And I wanted to share with you very quickly Six things that Paul tells us about this doctrine of justification, how God puts sinners right with himself. First of all, in justifying or declaring sinners righteous. God, according to the word of God, in verses 23 and 24, does so gratuitously. In justifying, that is, in declaring sinners, guilty sinners, righteous, God does so gratuitously. That is to say, he does so freely without regard to the question of the sinner's deservedness, merit, or performance. Listen to verses 23-24. For all have sinned, in fact, let me read and give you the idea of the Greek, particularly verse, verse 23. For all have sinned and are continually falling short of the glory of God, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Do you see how God justifies gratuitously? Notice what Paul says here in the text. He justifies by his grace as a gift. Now that God justifies freely is expressed by that very phrase as a gift. And again, let me point this out to you. This is very, very important. That in the Greek text, the word, Greek word, dorian, which translates this phrase as a gift, comes immediately after the word justified. He justifies us 
Dorian. And by the way, that word Dorian, it's a word from which we get our English word Dorothy, which means gift of God. You have a grandchild, you want to name your child Dorothy, right? Dorian. It comes right after, and here's the point, it is an adverb. It's actually an adverb. So when Paul says here, we are justified, the King James actually brings it out more precise. We are justified freely. We are justified Dorian. That means there is no question of merit. There is no question of deservedness. There is no question of performance. Having sinned and continually coming short of the glory of God, Sinners, the word of God teaches, are declared righteous by God freely, freely, freely. And such had to be the case, such was the case. Why? Because, you see, under the power of sin, watch this, under the power of sin, sinful human beings have absolutely nothing with which to commend them to God. Try as one might. There's nothing that one can ever do. Not all the good works, not the labor of my hands can fulfill your law's demands. The more man tries to get to God, it's the further he falls behind. Case in point, Martin Luther. Luther, you remember, he struggled. He struggled desperately. He tried everything. He tried penance. He tried self-flagellation. He tried everything to find peace with God. He tried to be better, but the more he worked at it, the more miserable he became. Here's the point. Luther came to the point where he recognized that God put sinners right with himself freely as a gift, and that's what sparked the Reformation. Under the condemning guilt and power of sin, men and women are, we would say, woefully bankrupt when it comes to producing the kinds of works that would please God, that would put them in right standing with God. Now, it's interesting to note that this word, back to this word, Dorian, he justifies us, Dorian, he justifies us freely. It's the same word that's translated without a cause in John chapter 15 and verse 25. And just to refresh your memory about John 15, 25, Jesus was referring to his persecutors and he was citing the Psalms and he says in John 15, verse 25, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. They hated me without a cause. They hated me, Dorian. In other words, they hated me freely. Now transfer this idea, transfer the idea of John 15, 25, into this text of Romans where he says we are justified freely. In other words, the idea is this, that when God justifies a sinner, here's the point, he justifies them without a cause. What does that mean? It means that there was no triggering factor in the sinner. There was nothing within the sinner that triggered any kind of response whereby God of necessity had to save them. The truth was there was nothing. In other words, there was everything in sinful man to repel God from visiting him with salvation or her with salvation. Listen, there was nothing good. Romans chapter 5 verse 8, for when we were without strength, in due time, Christ died for the ungodly. Even when we were rebels against him, even when we were enemies, wicked in our minds against him, Christ came and saved us. 
My friends, we need to understand that. And so that God justifies freely without any cause in the sinner, any triggering cause in the sinner, explains then why, according to verse 20, if you'll glance at verse 20, it explains this, why by the works of the law, no human beings will be justified in his sight. Why? Because they can't keep the law as God intended them to keep the law. Here's the point. Here's what makes this thing so miserable. Here's the point. From God's standpoint, if a person breaks one, the person is guilty of all. Here's the point. Even if going forward from this point in one's life, one never committed one act of sin, that person would still be in a very bad way. Why? Because past sins have to be atoned for. They have to be paid for. And so faced with the law, in order to find salvation in the law, man in sin, under the power of sin, is in woeful deficit, is bankrupt before God, such that God, in justification, just simply says, listen, not guilty. But we're going to come to see on what basis. That he justifies sinners freely is evidenced by verse 21 which says that the righteousness of God is manifested apart from the law. My friends, this is what makes the gospel the good news that it is. The fact that God in grace justifies sinners freely. He justifies, he declares sinners righteous gratuitously, without cost, without consideration of merit, without consideration of deservedness. In justifying or declaring sinners righteous then, God does so gratuitously. But secondly, notice from our text, that in justifying or declaring sinners righteous, God does so graciously. He does so graciously. That is to say, he does so out of sheer kindness, out of his marvelous grace. Again, look at verse 24. Look at the A part of verse 24, which tells us that sinners are justified by his grace, by his charis. They're justified by his grace. What is grace? Grace is a free gift. Grace is the expression of God's kindness. And notice in this text, Paul, in order to make his point emphatic, he engages in what we call tautology, redundancy. Because grace is a gift anyway. He says this, we are justified by his grace, which is to say by his kindness. And he, that kindness is expressed freely. But here's the point. He justifies by his kindness, by his sheer benevolence. In the context of our passage, the grace of God towards sinners, beloved, is all about his giving them salvation they do not deserve because that's what grace is. Grace is undeserved kindness. Grace is undeserved favor. Grace also is unsolicited kindness. Because here's the point. When it came to your salvation and mine, even before we asked for help, God said his saving love and purpose on us. He gave us the grace whereby we exercise faith and trust in him to save us. Salvation could never be earned. It could never be merited. Why? Because we have absolutely nothing that it takes to attract the grace and the kindness of God. In fact, even if there was something that attracted, and that's impossible, really, that would not be grace. Grace has to be grace against the backdrop of man's helplessness. And we were helpless, we were without strength, and hence, justification has to be gratuitous and it has to be gracious in the very nature of the case. Now, 
So in justifying or declaring sinners righteous, God does so gratuitously, freely. He does so graciously. But thirdly, notice from our text, in justifying or declaring sinners righteous, God does so at great cost. He does so at great cost. Listen, beloved, the thing you and I need to understand is that when God saved us, when God saves a sinner, when God justifies a sinner, when God says to men and women, not guilty, though freely and graciously granted, listen, our justification by God is not cheap. My friends, it came at an enormously high price. Our salvation or justification costs God tremendously. It costs God tremendously to put a sinner right with himself. We must never think, beloved, that when God saved, God was just simply, as we would say, he was so sorry for us. He took such pity on us that he winked at our sins. No, 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 no. Our salvation, our being justified by God came at an enormously massive cost to God. And so according to our text, note that our justification by God, or being declared righteous by God, notice the costliness of it, is grounded in the fact that it is based on the sacrificial work of Christ. It is grounded on the fact of Christ's death on the cross for sins. Verses 24 and 25 cite two aspects of this sacrificial work of Christ on the cross, whereby the sin problem was taken care of. Now notice from the text, one aspect of this costly sacrificial work of Christ that procured our justification, that procured our salvation, is spoken of in verse 25 as redemption. Notice, following the thought that sinners are justified by God's grace, verse 23, verse 24 continues, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Note the words, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. The question is, what is redemption? And my friends, when you look throughout scripture, the concept of redemption is always attended by the notion of a cost. Redemption is by a price. And listen, we could say this. What is redemption? It is a setting free in the Old Testament and New Testament context. In the biblical world, redemption referred largely to the setting free of a slave or prisoner by payment of a price. Redemption is always accompanied by a price. And the point is this. The Word of God teaches that as sinners, you and I were in servitude to sin. We were, as it were, in the slave market of sin, under the dominion, under the power, the ruling power of sin. And Christ, through his death, he paid the price, thereby freeing us from our sins. First Peter chapter 1, verse 18, knowing this, that you were not redeemed from your sins, your former way of life, with corruptible things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of the Lamb, the Lord Jesus, as of a Lamb without spot and without blemish. Listen, to redeem your soul and my soul, it required a great price in the blood of the Lord Jesus. Blood had to be shed. Blood had to be shed. Why? Because Hebrews chapter 9 verse 22 says, Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. 
the life is in the blood. Redemption is by blood. Now notice a second aspect of Christ's sacrificial work, underscoring the costliness of our justification. Not only do we see the word redemption, but again verse 25, propitiation. Reference to Christ, verse 25 says, whom God put forward, speaking of Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Propitiation, that word, it is found in Hebrews chapter 2 verse 17, it is found in 1 John 2 verse 2, is found in 1 John 4 verse 10. And all of these references speak of Christ being or making propitiation for our sins. But what is propitiation? The word means satisfaction. And in the Septuagint, that is the Greek version of the Old Testament, the word propitiation is a derivative. It's a word that's related to the word mercy seat in the Old Testament. You remember on the Day of Atonement, what would happen was the priest would go in and he would sprinkle the blood of the slain animal. He would sprinkle it toward the mercy seat. The mercy seat was where God, we would say, was satisfied. Sin was taken care of. It's a word that's used in that prayer of the publican. You remember when he went up to the temple, the Pharisee stood here and he was praying proudly. This sinner, this publican was praying, beating upon his chest and he kept praying, Lord, be thou to me a propitiation. That's the same word he was using. Be to me a sinner. Be merciful. That's a word. In other words, God be propitiated toward me a sinner. Propitiation means this. It means satisfaction. What that means, my friends, is this, that when Jesus died on the cross, his death, the word of God teaches, satisfied, it appeased, it pacified the wrath of God that was leveled against you and against me. Christ absorbed in his soul, in his body, the full measure of the wrath of God. When he cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The word of God teaches God looked on that and he saw the travail of his soul and what? He was satisfied. That was why our Lord Jesus could declare when all was said and done, it is finished. To tell us die, it is finished, which is to say, listen, it's paid for in full, which means by implication that the holy and righteous God of heaven has been fully satisfied, has been fully appeased. That is why, with respect to his death, and to give us some appreciation of how Christ's death functioned as a propitiation, as a satisfaction to God, Ephesians 5 verse 2 puts it like this, he gave himself up. As a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. When that sacrifice reached the nostril of God, God said as it were, Aha, now I'm satisfied. Now I'm at peace with man. Now there is favor. Now there is reconciliation. Why? Because propitiation has been accomplished through my son. Now here in verse 25 we find two truths regarding Christ. As a propitiation. First of all, propitiation was achieved by Christ's blood. And why is the reference to this blood so important? As we said earlier, Hebrews chapter 9, verse 22, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Leviticus chapter 17, verse 11, it is the blood that makes atonement. Secondly, a propitiation, verse 25b, it is appropriated by faith. That is to say, the sinner 
receives that saving benefit of Christ's propitiating work by faith, and in consequence of that faith, comes into saving favor with God. The saving benefit of Christ's propitiation, my friends, is accessed not by penance. It's accessed not by tears. It's accessed not by good deeds. Rather, the benefit of Christ's propitiatory sacrifice is accepted, is accessed by simple faith and trust in Christ. It is accessed by the sinner, trusting, confiding in the merits and sufficiency of Christ that is shed blood. Hence, going all the way back to Romans chapter 1, verse 17, we see the importance of faith because there were told salvation is for everyone who what? Believes. It's not a matter of trying, but it's a matter of trusting the finished propitiator work of Christ. Romans chapter 3, verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. And such faith, my friends, we would say is the sincere Trusting belief or conviction that because God, the holy God of heaven, is satisfied with the work of Christ, it means we are good to go in, as, when it comes to the matter of trusting him, resting in him securely for our eternal salvation. Are you doubting, fearful, wondering, am I saved? I came to Christ, but I, I'm not really sure. I'm worrying, I'm fretting. Here's the point. God is satisfied with Christ. The question is, are you? Are you resting in that fact of Christ's finished work, that Christ's work is, was sufficient, it was full payment for your sins, and that God, the holy, righteous God of heaven, is satisfied, is appeased, is, has been propitiated. It's not how we feel. The fact is Christ did the work. The Father is satisfied. We, therefore, are to rest in the finality, the sufficiency, and the efficiency of that work. So listen, in justifying or declaring sinners righteous, number one, God does so how? Gratuitously. Secondly, does so graciously. Thirdly, does so at great cost. But notice, fourthly, in justifying or declaring sinners righteous, God does so, listen, without compromising his justice. In justifying and declaring sinners, guilty sinners, righteous, God does so, without compromising his justice, without compromising his righteousness. And we see that in the B part of verse 25 as well as verse 26. As we said earlier, God's justification of sinners doesn't mean he overlooks or winks at their sins as a doting grandfather does at the naughtiness of his grandchildren. Uh, you know, Papa is just cool. <laughs> That's not the holy and righteous God of heaven. God being holy and righteous, my friends, means this, that his holy justice and wrath must be satisfied, must be exacted when it comes to judging sin. Because here's the point. Uh, you know, that is why, we, as we saw in verse 25, look, notice what verse 25 says. God put him forward. That is, put Christ forward. He presented him. Romans chapter 8 will say he delivered him up. But here it says he put him forward. For what purpose? As a propitiation. To satisfy, as it were, his wrath, his, his holy justice. And because we sinners could not satisfy the just demands of God, God therefore satisfied his justice and his wrath on Christ or propitiatory sacrifice. As Paul explains in verse 26, the reason why God set him forward as a propitiation, here's what Paul says. Why did God put him forth as a propitiation for our sins? 
Here's what he says, to show God's righteousness. Righteousness here speaks of justice. To show forth God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. Verse 26, it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In essence, Paul's point is this, or setting forth Christ as a propitiation for sins, God satisfied his justice in acquitting us of our guilt and he did so without violating his integrity. Why? Because the sin that offended him was paid for in his son. And hence, God can at one and the same time be a God of justice and a God who justifies sinners. Why? Because the price for sin, the penalty for sin, was exacted in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And as we wind on very quickly, fifthly, in justifying or declaring sinners righteous, God removes any possibility of human boasting. In justifying or declaring sinners righteous, God removes any possibility of human boasting. Look at verses 27 through 30 as such. Notice verses 27 and 28. No one can proudly claim salvation by works of the law. That's what verses 27 and 28 are saying in essence. When it comes to being saved, Jews and Gentiles are saved by the same God and through the same means, namely faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Indeed, we can say this, that at the foot of the cross, the ground is level when it comes to sinners. Every person who is saved or will ever be saved will be saved one way, and that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But let me hasten to give you the last point. Which is this, that in justifying or declaring sinners righteous, God summons us to live righteously. That's very important, you know, because people say, well, this doctrine of justification, what it does, then it says if we are justified by faith alone apart from works, that means we can live anyhow. That means once saved, I'm saved. It doesn't matter how I live thereafter. In fact, in Paul's day, there were people who were saying that. They said, let us do evil that good may come. Later in chapter 5, he's going to say this. Some were saying, where sin abounded, grace did much more abound, so it might as well sin. In light of the fact that God justifies sinners apart from works of the law, the question asked, look at verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. We said earlier, justification has nothing to do with our practice. It has everything to do with our position. But here's the truth. Every person justified by faith in Jesus Christ ultimately goes on to what? Sanctification. They are changed. They are renewed. They are transformed. And that is a token. That is a sign of true saving justification. In other words, those whom God saves, he changes he saves them as sinners, but he doesn't save them in their sins. They have to change. Do we then make void the law? Do we then become lawless? Do we then become libertine? Do we then become easy believism, free grace, live anyhow? By no means we uphold the law. Why? Because that's what the power, the transforming power of the gospel is to change lives. The songwriter John Peterson expressed beautifully the sweetness of justification by faith. Born of the Spirit with life from above, into God's family divine. Justified fully through Calvary's love. Oh, what a standing is mine. And the transaction so quickly was made. 
When as a sinner I came, took up the offer of grace, he did proffer, he saved me, oh praise his great name. What a marvelous doctrine, what a sweet doctrine. Saved, declared righteous through faith in the Lord Jesus, apart from works. Any listening to this message today who is not saved needs to be saved. It's not a matter of trying, it's a matter of trusting. Trusting not in yourself, but in the Lord Jesus. Jesus. 